Good morning. How's everybody today? Thank you for that, by the way. And uh, I didn't have any part in it, but um, yeah, thanks. Glad to have you here today. If you're a Kidmo, you can head on out. And uh, if you are a guest, you have a second through fifth grader, Kidmo is an environment for them to have some fun and their own teaching, some small group stuff, games and things. You're welcome to walk back there and see where they are headed. It's good to have you here. Is, have you had a good Thanksgiving? Yes. Is everybody awake? Anybody starting a new diet program tomorrow? No? Okay. Um, well, we're glad that you're here. As you can tell, we're starting to move into Christmas, and we are excited about that. Every year we celebrate Advent, which is the expectation of the coming King, the birth of the Messiah. And so what we have in front of us are the five candles of Advent, and each Sunday we will be lighting a candle. Today's candle is already lit, and this is, um, we are, are celebrating the expectation of hope um, that we have in Jesus Christ, and so the hope candle is lit today. In the coming weeks, um, we'll be asking some of you to light our candle for us, and we're excited um, just about celebrating that. So we'll be celebrating, let me just give you an overview of our Christmas season, what we're going to be doing. So the, Christmas is a little different this year. Uh, Christmas is on Monday, which means Christmas Eve is on, guess which day? Sunday. Normally, we have for our Christmas service, a Christmas Adam service. Uh, if you're our guest if, or if you're new to Journey, Christmas Adam, uh, the name came from the reality that we would hold our Christmas Eve service the day before Christmas Eve. And so uh, it became coined the Christmas Adam service because Adam came before Eve. So, you know, cute, fun name. However, the difference is Christmas Eve is on Sunday. So this year we're going to be celebrating um, our Christmas service on Sunday morning, Christmas Eve. We will not have a Christmas Adam service. The Christmas Adam service will be on Christmas Eve, but it will be Sunday morning, same time. Um, hope that you guys will be here. And our Christmas Eve service is going to be a whole lot of worship and music, singing, communion, and celebration. And so we hope that you will choose to be here and that you'll bring some friends um, so we will light a candle for each Sunday leading up to Christmas Eve. And on Christmas Eve, we will light the center candle, uh, which is the Christ candle. So we're beginning a new series today. Uh, I, I would like to say we're going to lighten things up a little bit. And I would, I, in re- all reality, we are. Uh, but we've come off of some heavy-duty series over the last few months, going through the Holy Spirit, going through our shadow mission, What happens when we embrace something that's just a little different from what God has called us to and where that leads us? Protestant was a series that we looked at a lot of the history of the church. We looked at a lot of the problems that the church developed as it began to intertwine in the political, worldly sphere where Jesus wanted us to come out of that sphere, to be in it in order to minister to others, but not to be influenced by it and not to let the church be influenced by what's going on in the rest of the world. We saw a great problem that happened in the church 500 years ago, but as, you, as I hope you saw, that we've seen problems in the church from the very beginning leading up to that point, even to today, where we are constantly having to semper reformanda, always be reforming. So as we go into this new series, we always talk more about um, things that are going on at Christmas And we wanted to do a series where we continued the thought of Christ bringing us out of the world and making a drastic change in the world around us. 
and recognizing the gift that God has given us through the birth of Christ in the world that we celebrate at Christmas time. So our series is called Redeemer, as you can tell. And uh, what we want to focus on is the characteristic and the name of Christ as our Redeemer. So as we do this, what I want you to recognize going into this series is that this is a heavy series on the gospel. Some what I'm going to share with you, you may be completely already on the same page. Some of it may be a new concept for you, depending on your background, depending on your study, depending on the amount of time you've put into looking at the doctrine of salvation. Uh, so as we go through this, I want you to stick with me. And if it encourages you to do some study on your own, I would encourage you to do that. One of the things that I shared with you a few weeks ago was that at Christmas time, we have an unrealistic view of the environment in which Jesus was born into. Now, when we think about Christmas and we have our manger, I call them manger scenes. You, you know, English literature people call them nativities. I call them manger scenes because that's what they are. But manger scenes always give, evoke the idea of a peaceful, idyllic countryside birth. You know, I know a big deal right now with young moms is natural at-home births. And so you kind of get this idea that Mary was sitting in a hot tub and Jesus just came out with no pain and no screams and no discomfort at all. And he just kind of appeared, you know, majestically, supernaturally. He was just there. But that is not the scene in which he came. We also have this idea because we have the imagery of the shepherds. We, when we try to lump all of the story of the birth of Jesus into one short timeline, we have this idea that the shepherds were just out on a wonderful summer day. It could not possibly have been um, at the time of, of winter because shepherds would not have been out keeping their flocks by night. But we have this idea that everything was just peaceful and wonderful and great. And then on top of all that wonder, Jesus entered the scene. That is not the environment in which Jesus comes. And if we see the birth of Jesus in that light, we will miss the idea of Redeemer and our need for a Redeemer that comes from Him. So as we look back again at some of the history of this period, what we find is that Jerusalem, for the most part, and Israel has been under the thumb of Rome now for almost 70 years. This was the time, if you remember, that Pompey came in and he overtook the city and that Rome's conquest of the rest of the world. And Israel became a token kingdom or a pocket kingdom of Rome. Now, what is a pocket kingdom? That's not something we talk about. I want you to keep in mind as we look through the history of the nation of Israel, they have for the most part been self-governing. They have been a nation who has been able to follow after God. And they have hoped that God would protect them and allow them to be an independent nation. Up until that point, for the most part, they had experienced that. But as Rome grew in power, Rome began to move around the known world. And in order to get around the Mediterranean Sea to some of the North African nations, they had to go through Israel. That's why Pompey marched into Jerusalem. And as he took the temple, it changed everything for the nation of Israel that was beginning to create the environment in which Jesus would enter. 
So as Pompey walked in, you remember the story that he was so enamored by their worship and by their faith that even as they were tearing down the temple walls and the temple doors to get in to take over the city, the priests never stopped their worship or their prayer entreating God to deliver them. This is when Pompey walked in. He looked around, wanted to know what God deserved this worship, and he did not see any image, and he was just amazed. But at this moment, if you're a student of the Old Testament, everything you know about the nation of Israel is going to change. Everything is different. The social environment is different. The political environment is different. Israel is no longer a free nation. They are now a pocket kingdom which means they have governors of their lands, but those governors answer to Rome. It means that they will pay taxes not just to those Roman rulers in Israel and in Jerusalem, but they also would pay taxes to Rome itself. And this is where we have at the end of a terrible line of kings in the nation of Israel, this is where King Herod enters the picture a few years later and will rebuild the temple. So I want you to imagine that this moment of Jesus' birth is not a peaceful, idyllic setting, but instead it is a time of great pain. In fact, you'll see in the New Testament, Jesus will say, many who have come in my name. Many have said they were the Messiah. Up to the, the birth of Jesus, we know historically at least three other rebels, revolutionaries, have claimed the title of Messiah, because they were going to deliver Israel from Rome. And in each of those cases, those revolutionaries were killed and usually dramatically to make a statement. So as Jesus comes in, there's great disrest. There's a lot of people who are suffering. Israel is no longer a self governing nation. The priests who were charged with holding the church and holding the nation accountable are no longer put into place based on God setting them there. Instead, they are chosen by Rome to be loyal to them. It changes everything. We talked a lot about that last week. The money changers in the temple was actually a political statement in addition to him saying, this is no longer my kingdom. I am not here. So as we go through this series, what I want to show you is what it looks like for us to worship a Redeemer. And in order to do that, we have to go back to the very beginning because the story of the coming of Christ begins in the Garden of Eden. As we look through the story of redemption, it begins here. In Genesis 3, verse 8, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. This is... The moment after Eve has eaten of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and Adam has then followed in her footsteps. If you'll remember, there are two trees that they were not supposed to eat from. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then the tree of life or eternal life. If you ate from that tree, you would literally never die. And so God intervenes. But in this moment, as we read in chapter 3, they have eaten from the fruit, and they have yet to stand in front of God, which is about to happen. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? 
And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman, of course, that's the way men answer, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, is, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. See, the coming of Jesus began in this moment. As we read through how God has prepared the world for the coming of Christ, we know that God, even before this moment, knew that there would need to be a Redeemer for us to be reconciled back to God. This is the moment, the eating of the fruit, that severed the expectation that we would walk with God for all of eternity without pain or sorrow or trouble. And yet God put those two trees in the garden, therefore causing us to choose, will we follow and obey or will we choose what's best for our own selves? And so when they chose, that put into all of history a series of events that would lead to the need for a redeemer. If we go through and we read a little farther in Genesis, we'll find the punishments that they were cast out of the garden, that the work that they would do to raise their crops would be harder. Adam and Eve, because of the fact that sin had entered into the world through their actions, would have their first two children and their oldest would kill the youngest son. It's an amazing story of what happens when we embrace our, not just our own sin, but our desire to put ourselves first in the world. So we look around the world today, that's not hard to see. It's not hard to see the effects of selfishness when you stand on the outside, but yet when we look at our own lives, it's hard to see our own narcissism. The fact that we want to put ourselves in the place of centrality in the world, that the world should revolve around me. And yet this was the birth of sin, that very reality. As we go through the history, we find that the hearts of all humanity became increasingly corrupt and irredeemable. Which is where we begin to enter into some uncomfortable history that Scripture tells us of God's action within the world. In Genesis chapter 6, it says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. For me, this is one of the most frightening passages of Scripture that I read. The reality that my state, my inward motivation, my propensity and desire to sin is so abhorrent to God that he would, in his righteousness and holiness, blot me out because it is so detestable in his sight. And that the world came to that place where when we take an 
an honest look at our own hearts are black and dark. To which he would say, I am going to do away with everything. And yet, what God demonstrates to us is that in our irredeemable state, God still loves us. God's wrath, when he looks at the sin and he looks at the state of humanity, is poured out on all humanity because of sin. As we go through the history, we'll find that God consistently shows times when he desires for us to be redeemed, even in spite of this. It says that he still saw Noah, and Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, so much so that Noah would spend a hundred years building an ark so that he could save humanity and save all of the species of animals on the earth. We, a few months ago, we went to, uh, we were actually headed up to Michigan, and we stopped in Kentucky by the Creation Museum. That's a massive ark. Has anybody been there to see that, the, the ark that's been built? I'm, so we have. Nobody else has. You've got to go see this thing. It is, it is absolutely, it is astounding. I told our kids as we walked through and walked under this enormous ship, if we believe that Scripture is true, if we believe that God is real, if we believe that Jesus is the Son of God and was born and He died for our sins, if we believe that Scripture is true and inspired, then a boat just like this existed thousands of years ago. This boat not only existed, but the flood happened just as Scripture tells us. Which is not hard to believe since Every ancient religion has a flood story. It's not just Christianity. If you look at any ancient religion of that era, there is a story of a great flood. It's amazing when scientists come and tell us that they find bones and fossils of fish high up in mountains. But it's not surprising to those who believe that Scripture is true. Because if we believe that Jesus is real, we also must believe that the flood happened and that God poured out his wrath on a people, and yet in the midst of his wrath, there was still love and redemption. Romans 1.18 describes it this way, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. As we read passages like this, if you're a fairly introspective person... 
It can be a, a pretty depressing uh, scripture reading, right? It can be pretty depressing to read about the wrath of God. But as we talk about redemption, as we talk about the need for a redeemer, there is no need for a redeemer if there is no wrath. So the Christmas story is coming into a time where there is great upheaval in the nation of Israel. There are warring groups going around trying to redeem, trying to understand. And at the time that Jesus was born, over 60 years, they have now been under the thumb of Rome, wondering if they would ever go back to the greatness for which they would have, of which is why when the apostles would talk to Jesus and Jesus spent time with them teaching them about the kingdom of God, the apostles would still say, "Is now when, when you... When you go to heaven, does that mean that's when we're going to be a, an independent nation again? And Jesus has to say, no, no, you're missing the point. My kingdom is not about making Israel an independent nation again. We're not just going back to the status quo before Pompey marched into Israel. There is a wrath that is destined for people. And I'm here to stop it and to pay the penalty for that wrath. As we look through these stories, the reason that we spend so much time together in worship, the reason that we serve others, the reason that we talk about our faith even when others criticize us, whenever the world is telling us that we're sheep, which Scripture says, yet you are, is the fact that we recognize that we, we are due this wrath. And yet in that, God has repeatedly chosen to redeem an irredeemable people. Now, when we go through this, this is, this is kind of a, a heavy-duty understanding of God's wrath and His desire for redemption. If you go up to the street, on the street, and just some guy or some girl is walking down the road, and you walk up and you say, did you know that you are irredeemable? They will not say, tell me more. I'd like to know more. You know, to, I, I know. I know that. They're not going to say that. In fact, they may just eat, at best stop talking to you, at worst physically harm you. You know, you just don't walk up to people and say, you know, guess what? You are irredeemable. Because that doesn't feel good. And there's something in us that wants us to believe that we are inherently good. We make a few mistakes here and there, but inherently we are good. And when we have, you know, our children and little babies and they're so cute. And if you, if you are a, a first-time parent with a baby, they grow out of that really quickly. They grow, no, they're still cute, but no, they really do grow out of it. So... We look at that and we want to believe that we are born inherently good. And Scripture maybe hints at the possibility that we're at least born somewhat neutral to a point until we begin to make decisions for our own lives. But at that moment, we will always choose ourselves over others. Anytime we choose others over ourselves is an indication that the Holy Spirit is at work in some way within us. Because left alone by ourselves, we will choose ourselves. It's why our nation struggles with the issues that it struggles with. 
It's why you're hearing all of the things in the news, all of the assaults and all of the abuse that is now coming out from people that we have worshipped and we have put into positions of influence over us. We recognize all people are fallible. Now, it's easy when we look at this wrath for us to become people of wrath ourselves and begin to look at the sins of others and tell them how awful they are. It's easy to pile on and say, you know, Tennessee should not have lost the game yesterday. There's great sin in Vol Nation. (laughs) Easy to do that. But what Scripture tells us is that you and I are all exactly the same. Whoever you think is the best among us, we are just like them. And whoever is the worst among us, we are just like them. We are all the same. There is only one thing that can differentiate us in this regard, and that is if we have been redeemed. And as we look at these stories, it is easy to become angry. It's easy to want to say, I want to have nothing to do with a God who would cause such great pain in the world and judging the world. And yet what we see if we follow the story is that God has repeatedly chosen to redeem us. Now what does that mean to redeem? That's a churchy word. You don't use that unless you're going to go to a concert and you need to redeem your ticket. What does it mean to redeem? And for our definition, for what we're using for this series and what we, how we understand it in Scripture literally means to gain or regain possession of something in exchange for payment. Now let that Read that. Let that sink in. To gain or regain possession of something or someone or a people in exchange for payment. See, with the idea of a redeemer is always the idea of a debt and a payment. A debt that must be paid and possession that comes once the debt is paid. That's what it means to be redeemed. As we look through these stories, God redeemed humanity through Noah and his children. Now we would see that because of our sinful nature... Even though they were the best of the best, it was no time at all before we fell right back into the same behaviors. It's a condition of the heart. It's not that Noah wasn't good enough. None of us are good enough. Any of us in the same situation would fall in the same ways. It's just the condition of the human heart. It's what happens when you have the knowledge of good and evil, and more importantly, when we choose to disobey the Creator who put us in the garden and then said, because of your sin, you cannot stay here. But I will not leave you alone. I will not utterly destroy you, even though that is what my holiness and justice calls for. My love for you leads me to redeem you. It's not the first, or it's not the only story of redemption that we find in the Old Testament. There are many. God also redeemed the children of Israel from Pharaoh. And when he did this, he introduced something that would help us to find redemption, and that was through strict adherence to the law, which is a lot of fun, let me just tell you. If you don't think it's fun, just remember when you were a kid and your 
parents told you not to do something. It's a lot of fun, strict adherence to the law. Deuteronomy 7, 6 says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Let that sink in. All that He is talking about for the nation of Israel, His chosen people that He was delivering from Pharaoh, He is transferring to us through Jesus Christ that we would be His treasured possession. Which is another reason people reject the gospel because I'm no one's possession, right? I'm my own man. (laughs) I determine where and what I do. And yet scripture tells us that God's love is so complete that we belong to him and we become a treasured possession. Out of all the peoples, it says, who are on the face of the earth, which I love this. It was not, this is how he chose them. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. In other words, there was nothing redeemable about you that I would choose you. But I chose you anyways. It was because the Lord loves you. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. See, on that day, 2,000 years ago, Jesus entered into our human condition because of his love for us. So many times we reject the idea of the need for a redeemer because we want to believe in ourselves. And yet to choose to believe in ourselves, we must ignore the holiness of God, the wrath of God, and ultimately the love of God. Because if I go about it on my own, then how can I continue with a loving God? You know, this is a temptation that many of us face. I know based on the personalities in the room, that a lot of the personalities in the room could be very content being alone. Now, there are others that being alone causes great fear within you. But for many, you could easily go it alone. There are some days that, you know, I've just interacted with a ton of people. And as I've shared before, you know, I'm not the most outgoing person in the world. Sometimes I appear outgoing when I'm teaching, but when I'm in a room with people, I'm not the most outgoing person in the world. I, I, it, it causes me to lose energy to constantly be interacting with people. That's the way God made me. And so for me, there are times that I just kind of have to protect myself and kind of ball up and get away, and I, I kind of re-energize. And so it's very easy for some of us to choose to be the center of our own stories, to just kind of ball up into ourselves and to walk this world and this life alone. And when we do that, we, we do not have the opportunity to walk with God and experience his love. Because it's his love that causes him to move to redeem us. The strict adherence to the law, if any of you have taken me up on the challenge to read chronologically through Scripture, then uh, you're, you, should be some, you should at least be, if not pass, somewhere in the Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and Numbers section of the Old Testament, which is, quite honestly, 
If you struggle with going to sleep at night, read those three books, <laughs> and it'll put you right out. I mean, it really will. You can have a whole pot of coffee and still put you out. I mean, it's, it's that much of a snoozer. But as you go through there, what it is is God showing the nation of Israel, okay, I have pulled you out of where you are. I have paid your debt, and I have allowed you to move on and become a nation, my chosen people. But now I want you to see what it looks like to walk with me. Because they had no idea. They even came to the point walking in the desert when they would say to Moses, just let us go back. This is worse than what we had before. They had no idea what God was doing for them or their opportunity to walk with him. Even whenever they would walk with these supernatural indicators of a cloud and fire and God would, would take care of their every need by providing manna every morning for them to eat. They still didn't get it. And so God gave him, gave Moses the law. And the law was to show them what it looked like to walk with God. It was so counterintuitive. That's why we see the law as bad, because it's counterintuitive. If it was something that you would do anyways, just, you know, I want you to sleep in every morning. Okay, God, I'm right with you. Let's obey together. I want you to eat more than you should at Thanksgiving. Yes done did it gonna do it again tonight we still got leftovers it becomes the law when it's counterintuitive to what we would naturally do and so much of it was counterintuitive to what we would naturally do that's why we have such deep uh, levels of instruction on how to live this life, even on how to be a good neighbor. I mean, it's really incredible once you get in and start reading it, not because you got to get through it, but begin to see what is God trying to show us about himself and how he loves us and how we're supposed to love other people around us still living in a broken world. That's what the law was supposed to do, and yet it felt so oppressive and overwhelming. And the problem with salvation through the law, the reason this is, is because of our own weakness. Again, not something to walk up to somebody on the side of the street and say, hey, did you know that you're weak? Not a good thing to say. That's not what people want to hear. But yet it was our inability to fulfill walking with him in this way that we would need something more. Romans 8 describes it this way. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Jesus came... To deal with all of this once and for all. See, when we look back at the history and we understand some of the political upheaval, we begin to understand why Jesus would say, you know what, don't worry about the political upheaval. What I am doing is so much bigger than that. I've come to change everything. We read through this. What I want you to see today, we're going to 
Today is more about understanding the concept of our need for a Redeemer. We're going to show you what it looks like to live that out over the next three weeks. But we needed, as a result of all of this, a perfect Redeemer. Someone who would purchase us so we could belong to God again. The reason I say again is because we did when we walked in the garden. We walked away when we embraced sin, which we all will do. All of us will do. We walked away. And the only way back was to be redeemed. Now, in the Old Testament, this is why it was important that you had a healthy herd. (laughs) Because if you sinned, there was a way for you to come back. There was a way for redemption through the law. And through the law, that meant that you had to sacrifice an animal. That's why Scripture tells us that redemption comes through blood. In the Old Testament, it was about taking an animal and killing that animal putting your hand on it, transferring your sin to that animal and then taking its life. And what that did in that moment was atone for your sin, but reinforce to the person making the sacrifice how bad their sin is when you have to see what you have to do in order to pay for it. And in this is an imperfect system because we are not able to do this ourselves. We are not able to be strong enough. We are not able to be good enough. We are not able to follow the law well enough. And so it becomes a very frustrating, self-defeating process when you truly understand your sinfulness to say, God, I, I, I am corrupt. I, I cannot be better than this. And it's God's love. He said, I'm not going to expect you to be. I'm going to do this for you. I don't know how much you study. We, we often talk about Jesus. There were two, two miraculous births at the time of Jesus, Jesus and John the Baptist. This is Zechariah's prophecy about John the Baptist. He said in Luke 1, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. John's job was to prepare the way for Christ's ministry. 
And so as we go through and look at the ministry of John, it's, it's no surprise when we understand Jesus is our Redeemer that John's primary message was a message of repentance. It's not a feel-good message. We don't want people to come to us and say, you're going the wrong way. You need to turn back. In fact, it's one of the indicators of a maturing faith. When repentance ceases being the enemy and you begin to welcome repentance because you know it leads you to a closer walk with Christ, then you welcome it with open arms. I'm not saying it is easy to repent, but you welcome the ability to do so because you know that is the way of God. That's where He is. That's where I want to be. It takes It takes an experience with the Holy Spirit and it takes an experience with Christ to come to the place of saying, God, help me to repent. It's one of the factors that are missing most in our average daily walk as followers of Jesus. Repentance has kind of gone by the wayside because we have had this kind of growth of the idea that we are still the center of the story and We have made God a piece of the story, but he's not the whole thing. And we cannot come to a place of knowing Christ until he becomes everything. As John came and began to prophesy, he began to teach, and he began to prepare people to hear the message of Christ's redemption. The birth of Christ was the perfect redeemer entering the world to save us from our sin and God's wrath. See, God is well within his rights to judge us and to punish us. Well within his rights. And yet he chooses because he loves us to save us instead. See, the birth of Jesus, it was about a redeemer coming that was going to change the whole system, change the whole process. While we may not offer sacrifices Some of you today may still be trying to atone for your sin. Maybe if I feel bad enough. Maybe if I try harder. Maybe if I just admit how bad I really am. And God will love me. And God will forgive me. And even if we're not still sacrificing animals, something in us tells us, I still have to do this on my own. And Jesus announced with the birth of Jesus, he was going to do it for us. This literally changes the entire landscape of faith from the very beginning of creation for the rest of eternity. In this moment, everything is changing. So much so that as people struggle with God, why will you not just liberate us from the Romans? He's saying, I'm giving you not just liberation from the Romans. I'm giving you liberation from a corrupt world that you have corrupted yourselves. I'm rescuing you out of it because I love you and I want you to be with me and I will do everything for you if you will cry out for this salvation. Hebrews 9 is an incredibly rich chapter when it comes to talking about redemption. I, I want to be, just look at a few verses in chapter 9, beginning with verse 11. Now, I just want you to hear what he's saying in this regard. 
But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have, have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of the creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Now, if you're not familiar with kind of your Old Testament practices, this may be a little confusing. Each year, the priest would go into the temple, specifically the Holy of Holies, and give an atoning sacrifice for the nation. And they would go into the Holy and Holies where there was an altar, and, and they would sacrifice the appropriate sin offering so that God would forgive their sin. They would have to do this every single year for all of eternity. And yet what what we're hearing and what we're seeing is that Jesus is going to go in and lay himself on the altar, one atoning sacrifice that will cover everything from there on out. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, the practices of regular practice of being purified, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred, his death is what he's talking about, that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The first covenant was the covenant that God gave to Abraham, and then he continued with Moses, and that they had been living under up to this moment. He was going to help them to prosper. He was going to be with them. He was going to rescue them. And they would fulfill these duties in order to reach that place. And yet, continually, we turned away from God. And the Old Testament is rich with more examples of turning away from God than turning to God. But eventually, the nation would turn back to God. What he's saying is that Jesus' death was going to overcome all of those problems. All of our mistakes, all of our bad choices. I've shared before uh, about my grandfather, who if you've ever watched the movie Saving Private Ryan, in the opening scene, the boats that would bring the troops to the beach that were under fire and so many of those troops that were killed, my grandfather was one of the, they called them trucks, one of the truck drivers. And he would ferry wave after wave of troops back to the beach. And he was, he was at that battle. My grandfather, for years, he would not come to a place of accepting Christ as his Savior because he believed that the things he had done in, in his service kept him from ever being forgiven from God. This is a common theme I find in people that have been through severe battle, have done things to survive and to win the objective, and later feel some kind of guilt over what they have had to do. My grandfather experienced that for most of his life. He would pass away in his late 80s, and just before he passed away, 
he came to a saving knowledge of Christ in his life. But for that period, that entire period of his life, he believed his sins were so severe that God would never redeem him. You know, that is a person who understands the broken human condition. But what he didn't understand was how immense God's love for him was, not until later in life. Nor that no one was better than him. And if we're honest, theologically, and we understand what Scripture is saying, we are no worse than whoever we think is the worst person on the face of the planet. We are the same. We are all in need of redemption. He would redeem them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For even, excuse me, for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship, which was part of the practice of the time. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is why sweet little baby Jesus came, so we could be redeemed. Verse 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, talking about the temple, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. One more time, as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed a man to die once and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Here's what I want you to take away from today. It's a lot of scripture, and if you're following on version, you can go back and read through these throughout the day or throughout the week. The concept of redemption is that you and I are in great need. There are some days I recognize my need more than others. When things are going really well, I don't really recognize my need so much. When I feel like I'm doing a good job, I don't always recognize my need. When things are not going well, That's when I recognize it. When things are hurting, 
that's when I recognize it. When things are going wrong, that's when I recognize it. When I feel the consequence of my sin, that's when I recognize my need for Him. That's one of the reasons that I believe God allows bad things to happen in our lives. It's hard to sit with a family who has just gone through a trauma and to be able to explain to them why this is happening. There really is no answer when you have to do that. There's nothing that erases the trauma. The trauma is still there. But I believe God lets that happen because it is in those moments when life seems to be falling apart that we so recognize our need for Him and are most apt to reach out to Him. You think, oh God, but man, that just makes life so hard. Shouldn't you make life easier? And absolutely, if life ended when we took our last breath. Absolutely. If all of our existence had to be from the moment we were born to the moment we breathe our last, and that's it. That's all there is. Absolutely. God, don't make us struggle so that we will reach out to you. What's the purpose in reaching out to you if it's always a struggle? It's because redemption was never meant to be a temporary fix. It would change all of eternity for us. And so if we have to go through a struggle for a short time in this life, we'll be with Him for all of eternity in the next. That's what He's saying. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin. He's already done that. But to save those who are waiting for Him. This Christmas season, you're going to have lots of opportunities to do all kinds of traditions. We're going to do all kinds of traditions. We started putting up decorations last night. I got the tree up. and I hate putting up Christmas trees. I just hate it. You know, it takes up so much room in the house. There's less places to sit, and the tree's never straight. Some of the lights don't work sometimes. Um, (laughs) But you'll have all kinds of opportunities to go through all kinds of traditions. I bet a lot of those have to do with family and friends, and and that's one of the, what I find the most wonderful time or most wonderful thing about this season is the refocus of friends and family. I, I love that. But as you go through this, I, I don't want you to walk out of here walking away thinking, wow, I just really need to think worse about myself than I really do. That's not how I want you to walk out of here. You know, one of the things about a Redeemer is that once He has paid our debt, we need to stop worrying about that debt. For some of you, You're carrying your debt around, and it's already paid. You can't see that the bill says owed amount is zero. You still believe you've got to atone for your problems and mistakes, the things you've done or what others have done to you. You still believe that somehow we're still under the old covenant, the old law that says, I have to be perfect to be loved. You know, it's not hard to see when a person's living that way. Because when a person's living under that guilt, 
they transfer that guilt to others. So when someone's constantly pointing out your problems and your faults, it could possibly be they're trying to help you overcome them. But those are unique and loving relationships. They don't always feel loving in the moment, but they're unique and loving relationships. But those who live their lives wanting to point out the faults of everyone else are trying to deal with their own faults that they don't feel that they can be redeemed from. That's why we pass them along. If I'm going to struggle with this, you might as well struggle with it too. And if I see how bad I am, I sure hope you see how bad you are too. That is not what a redeemer does. He does not pay our debts only for our debt to continue to loom over us. He pays our debt so it will be gone. So this season, I hope that you will see if you put out a manger scene, if you put out a nativity, I'm, don't invite me to your house. I only come to houses that have manger scenes because you, you highbrow people that put out nativity scenes. I'm just not couth enough, as my mother would say. But she would actually say that. My mother, throughout most of my childhood, said she hopes I would never get invited to go see the president because I would embarrass her, you know, because ha- I'm not couth. I don't have, you know, I don't act right. And if you ask Deidre, I still don't. I still don't act right. As we look back through this story, I want us to see the story of a Redeemer. Next week, what we're going to talk about is is the idea, not the idea, but the reality that redemption is a paying the debt to regain possession of something. What does it look like for us to be a possession of God? that, that is one of the most wonderful promises that we have in life, that we are His. So we're going to look at what does that look like. Once we are redeemed, how, and, and the, what that looks like, quite honestly, is, is a, a, a phrase coined by, by a lot of preachers, I guess. I don't, it's not really in Scripture in this manner, but it's literally the exchanged life. We take the life that we have, and we are at literally exchanging it for something else. Redemption is a whole new life. It's a whole new reality. And even if you feel like, you know, but I'm still the same person with the same problems, but you're not. Redemption, being redeemed, means you are not the same. All of of creation has changed. You have changed. Fundamentally, you are not the same person. And anyone that tells you you are does not understand redemption. You are not the same. When we go about living our lives the same way we always lived them before, that is to ignore the power of a Redeemer who has come to give His life for us so that we would not be the same anymore. It's incredible. Once you understand what it means to be redeemed, one of the, the last week we're going to look at this. Psalm 107 is just a wonderful psalm. And It says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. On the lips of the redeemed is a need to tell others about the redemption that's available because it is so overwhelming. And so wherever you are this Christmas season, I know a lot of people still struggle under the old system. I've got to be good enough. If I could just be good enough, then maybe God would love me. Maybe God would forgive me. Maybe God would... 
redeem me. Maybe life would feel different. I just want you to know you don't have to get there. If you have to get to the place where you're good enough, Jesus didn't have to die for you. But he chose to willingly because of his great love for you. And he didn't hang on that cross so we would say, I'm just not good enough. Jesus is saying, I know you're not good enough. I will be good enough for you. I'll be born again into a new life. For all eternity, you will walk with me. As I said earlier, there is no need for a Redeemer if there is no wrath. There is no debt. But we know that there is. It's not hard to see that we're in a broken world. All you have to do is open your eyes and open your ears. It's easy to see the brokenness in our world. The only way that we, you and I, could escape the wrath of God was for a Redeemer to take our place. That is what we celebrate at Christmas. You know, it's interesting. As I looked at some of the the background of Christmas, one thing you don't find in most uh, first century historians you don't find any celebrations of Christmas. It's really amazing. They did not have any special festivals. They did not have any special feasts. They did not have any special events around the remembrance of the birth of Jesus. We do that, and as I shared last week, there are some reasons that we have made Christmas such a big deal. We do that, but they didn't do that. The apostles didn't do that. Because the apostles weren't focused on the birth of Jesus. They were focused on what Jesus did for them on the cross. So as you go through this series, you're gonna you may at times think, you know, this feels like we should be talking about this at Easter. Absolutely. And after Easter and before Easter and every other time. But the reason I wanted us to do this series together is because I hope that you will see God's great love for you, that he gave his life so that your debt could be paid. And when he entered into the world, it was not just a good teacher or a prophet or someone who would die on a cross. This was our redemption that came into the world. Let's celebrate that together as we celebrate Christmas. Would you pray with me? Father. God, I thank you that your spirit is so powerful and so overwhelming. Lord, that we are even able to talk about this. That we even recognize our need for you. That is a gift from you, that we even know a need. Father, I thank you for the gift of Christ on the cross so that we could be forgiven. Lord, I thank you that you saw us as someone that you loved. And even though we fail time and time again, you have not counted that against us because you sent your son to redeem us. He has paid our debt. Father, I pray for those in this room who are living their lives 
completely controlled by their perception of their debt. They are running their mistakes over and over and over in their head. What if I had done something differently? What if I had not fallen into that? What if I had not allowed myself to go there? What if I could change that? What if I could just go back and change it? God, those thoughts are not from you. Our need to personally atone, those thoughts are not from you. Because Jesus, he paid it all for us. Father, I pray that on our hearts we would, we would be a people of deep repentance. And that we would not be repentant because we are obligated, but we would be a people of repentance because repentance is the path to walking with you and being with you, and that is the great treasure. Father, I pray that you would forgive us that even now, though forgiven from our sins, we continually make poor choices. Forgive us for those choices and lead us back in your way. Father, I thank you for your immense, overwhelming love that as much as I want to believe I'm better than somebody else, that there's always somebody worse than me in the world, and in your eyes, there is nothing more, any more redeemable in me than in them. We are all equal in your eyes. I thank you that even though I know so many wonderful, incredible examples of Christians today, they are no better than me in your eyes. Father, I pray that you would hear our prayer and hear our worship. As you give us hope, even in this broken world, there is a way out. There is a way to transcend. There is a way for a better life and a better world. God, I thank you that you have not called us to redeem this corrupt world, but you have called us to live in a different one. Help us to follow you and to know that we are forgiven and that we are saved. Thank you for the gift of Christ. And as we celebrate Christmas, let that constantly be on our minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.